0: Uh, good morning, Woodside. I was. Good morning. I was not expecting to be here. Um, Matt called me yesterday, and he said, "Are you? Do you want to preach?" And I said, "Of course." But I don't have any clothes, so half the stuff that I'm wearing is not mine. In order to be with you guys today, I wanted to be. I wanted to look nice. Um, but if you didn't know, we we will be moving down to Texas in about a week. We'll be going to the Austin area. Um, it's very exciting. It's, it's thrilling, um, quite frankly, what God is doing, but not as thrilling as what we are going to see in God's Word today. And so, after today's service, if you'd like to catch up with us, we'd love to tell you what the Lord is doing. But now, I just would like you to turn your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Here is the reading of God's word. And I when I came to you brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And it is with much fear and trembling that I also preach this message today. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Gracious God in heaven, what a privilege it is to be here this morning with this church, with this body, to proclaim your word. Lord, I ask that you would fill me now with your spirit, that you would give me unction, that your word would go forth in the power, in the spirit, in the wisdom of all that you are through your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see Christ crucified this morning so that we might be encouraged, that we might be continue to be sanctified. And for those of us who have yet to come to a full resting faith on Christ, that you would do that magnificent work this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. What are you resting your life on? What are you resting your life on? Well, in a 2018 article, a stat was shared addressing the quintillion bits of data that are being produced every day from the boom of the dot-com era and the internet of things. Uh, The author cites that in the two years prior to when it was written, so this is 2016 to 2018, he says more than 90% of all the information ever produced in the world occurred in those two years. 90% of all the information occurred in those two years. That is an astonishing number. We live in a day where information, content, and data is shared in order of magnitudes that we can't possibly fathom. In another research article, the amount of information sent in 2007 alone was equivalent to every human being on Earth reading 174 newspapers every day the same year. There is both wonder and astonishment when you begin to think about the impact, the influence, and the strides mankind has made in the last century. And yet, it introduces an equally significant problem. What do we make of all of this? How do we filter through the data and competing voices we arrive at? What is important and worthwhile and true? Who do we credit for this industry? For these advancements do I dare say glory of all that we are taking part in every single day. Today's message is entitled, Resting on the Wisdom and Power of God. I want us to consider a problem that is not new to our specific time and place, but a problem that occurs in every generation. Whose wisdom is most advantageous? Whose wisdom is most true? And whose wisdom is necessary for the good of man? Well, in our text today, Paul addresses this theme of wisdom as he recounts his initial missionary undertakings among the Corinthian church several years prior. The purpose of Paul's letter and the occasion for which he writes is that reports and concerns have made their way back to him as he is ministering in Ephesus. Described in these reports were issues of church division, marital issues, sexual immorality, and a return to idolatry. If you don't know anything about the city of Corinth, it was a modern-day metropolis, something similar and akin to that of New York City or San Francisco, if you will. It, it attracted visitors and travelers from all over the Roman Empire. It was politically, economically, and socially prosperous, and it, it valued its very highly competitive Spirit that drew the best of the best from all around. And so those who desired to make a name for themselves would want to pass through the city of Corinth. But as one commentator describes, while it was intellectually alert and materially prosperous, it was also morally corrupt. The greatest issue facing the Corinthian church was its constant exposure and pressure to be like the world around it. And this is what led to the many reports coming back to Paul that the church was now comparing and applying these Corinthian worldly standards to the ministry and to the church. And that is at the heart of what is causing so many issues. And so in our text this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is reflecting on his church planting experience, if you will. And so from our passage, I want to consider three points Of some um, three points and then a final point of of some practical application from our text today I want to consider these three headers first the critique of Paul second the methodology of Paul third the purpose of Paul first the critique of Paul on the Corinthian culture we know from chapter 1 that Paul and the other missionaries are being compared to one another People are trying to figure out which of these leaders was the most effective according to the wisdom of the age. They're trying to determine which leader among them was wise according to the standards of Corinthian culture. Notice from our passage the negative use of the word wisdom found several times in the verses. Paul critiques and distances himself from the standards set on him by the culture. He says, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In verse 4, he says, my speech and message were not plausible words of wisdom. And again in verse 5, I did not want your faith to rest on the wisdom of men. This clues us in on something about the emphasis and the problems leading to the divisions and the reports coming from concerned church members in chapter 1, verse 11. The reason these divisions had sprung up were in part from worldly values, worldly ideas of wisdom that the church had adopted from the culture around them. We are given hints in the text at what those values were. You don't need to be a New Testament scholar to figure out what these Corinthian people cared most about. They placed a very high value on intellectual acumen. They desired to quantify which missionary embodied the most skilled and most effective gospel ministry using cultural criteria set not by the teachings of the missionaries or the scriptures, or even the wisdom of God, but on the wisdom of the day. Who among them had lofty speech? Who came in plausible words of wisdom? Who spoke the most eloquently? Who was the most persuasive? The culture of that time would have highly valued rhetorical skills as a means of determining who is the most worthwhile to listen to. Who among these men had the best public speaking skills? Who was the best teacher that sounded the wisest? Who seemed like they were the best? Who seemed like they were the most shrewd? The most effective debater? Who was the most effective in preaching the gospel among us? Who was most like the great orators we see in our great city? Conversations and problems are illustrated by Paul in verse 12 of chapter 1. He writes this I hear you saying, Are you a follower of Paul or are you a follower of Cephas? Who baptized you? Oh my goodness, that's a shame. I guess it's to be expected someone saved and baptized under the ministry of Apollos. What's going on here? What are they bickering over? Well, just like today, every church is at constant risk of absorbing the societal ideologies practices, and values that surround them to not only judge ministry effectiveness, but to compare ministry success. You can think of it like this. How do you compare Michael Jordan versus LeBron James? What standard or metrics do you use to determine who is the greatest? Oh, LeBron, he's going to be in the NBA longer than Jordan. He's going to beat all of his records. Yeah, but Jordan accomplished so much more in the short amount of time that he was in the NBA. He averages better than LeBron in almost every category. Well, LeBron in the NBA, the players are better and bigger now, and the game's more physical. If you took LeBron and put him in Jordan's time or something, he would crush and dominate everybody. Oh, but Jordan, he's got all these titles, and he's never going to... No one's influenced the game of basketball, blah, blah, blah. I want to be honest with you guys. I have no idea what I just said. I looked that up online in a comment (laughs) battle on Facebook, okay? I know Matt would never invite me back to preach if I said Michael Jordan wasn't the best. So I am just parroting what I've seen other people talk about. You get the analogy though, right? This is exactly what was taking place in the Corinthian church just several years after Paul had left. People began to form these dividing lines, pick these parties that didn't exist based not on the word and the teachings they received from these men that testified to the grace of God, in his wisdom and power, but on the values and standards of men set by men. Paul is critiquing the culture and now the church for this adoption of worldly wisdom. But we ought not to think that because we are outsiders looking in, that we are not prone to this error as well. We as individuals, not just churches, we must ask ourselves, what are we resting on for the effectiveness and success of our ministries. Are we relying on the wisdom that comes from God, from his word, or is it from men? Whether that be missions, benevolence, outreach, parenting, youth ministry, personal evangelism, worship, social justice, the list can go on and on. Paul is critiquing the Corinthian church because the church was acting more Corinthian than they were Christian. If we do not closely examine ourselves from time to time, if we do not actively take precautions to weed out worldly influences and identify cultural values that shape us more than the Word of God, it will not take a generation of Christians to begin filtering ministry and teaching and morality through the matrix and wisdom of man. For the Corinthian church, it only took about two to three years. It should be a warning for us. We must not let our guard down. We must review, defend, and hold ourselves to the authority of God's word in everything that we do. Are we being motivated to change in the church or our personal lives because we're convicted from God's word or because there's some kind of societal pressure Are we upholding a Christian value or doctrine because that's just the way that it always has been? Or because we are convinced by our study of God's word? Do you know why you believe the things that you believe? Are you able in some way to articulate them, to defend it, and to critique things based more, not based on the wisdom of the day or according to the knowledge of God? Now, I realize that there are many good podcasts available right now and many pastors whose ministries have become available online. But when it comes to any issue or value or a subject matter, are you more convinced because John Piper said something about an issue or because the scriptures say something about an issue? And I simply use John Piper because I listen to everything John Piper. (laughs) Are your beliefs about politics Finances, education, marriage, gospel ministry, are they shaped more by the wisdom of the day or the wisdom of God? Have you consumed more content and are you more informed about ongoing race issues right now and social justice from your favorite news program more or the Word of God? Or worse, are you informed by social media or your Bible? These issues facing the Corinthian church that Paul is critiquing do not just happen overnight or they just spring from nowhere. For them to have gotten to the public level of the church and divisions, you must realize that it had to take place first at the private level, in the individual. We must be humble enough to frequently reflect and, if necessary, admit when we are more knowledgeable and rely more on the values and wisdom of the world than we do on the wisdom of God and the word of God. Amen? Amen. What are you resting your life on? Point number 1, Paul's critique of Corinthian culture. Point number 2, the methodology of Paul's ministry. I'm sure many of us imagine ourselves wishing we could have been under the ministry of Paul. You know, we perceive him to be this titan of the faith. One who preached and taught powerfully, he he planted a dozen or more so churches, he counseled and discipled so many church leaders, he took the gospel to the Gentiles to some of the most hostile places, all for the glory of God and for the love of his fellow brother. If only we could have been a fly on the wall. If only we could have seen Paul's ministry up close. Then we can draw from it. We can see the nuances, its essence, its, its flavor. And then we can take that and bring it back and bring revival to churches. But that's not how the Corinthian church viewed Paul. That is not how Paul viewed Paul. In fact, Paul was so unassuming in his ministry that some began to even question his apostleship. It's the reason why 2 Corinthians is written. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, it was said of him, His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Paul says of himself in verse 3 of our text this morning, I was among you in weakness and in much fear and trembling. Paul does not deny or try to cover up or minimize his deficiencies. He highlights them. He draws their attention to them. Paul does not sound like the kind of preacher who I would want to invite to our next church retreat. This description of Paul it makes him, quite honestly, in everyday vernacular, kind of lame. Paul's not like one of these great TED Talk speakers that we view online who perfectly present their life's work an area of expertise in an engaging, spellbinding, 15-minute sermonette, Paul describes himself almost as the antithesis of what an effective communicator is. Paul does not describe himself as one who displayed stunning character qualities of self-assurance, calmness, superiority, bravado that the Corinthians would have valued. He makes himself sound rather pitiful. But what is so interesting about this and the way that he talks about himself is that it's so intentional. It's not like he is unaware of such external and subjective worldly standards. He knows about Corinth. He knows what the people are going to say about him. But in verse 2 he says this, I decided. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There is an intentional effort on Paul's part to avoid sounding like any of his contemporaries. He does not want to use Christ or the Gospels or the mysteries of God to appear wise and intelligent and impressive. He did not want to be counted among the greatest of orators and public speakers in Corinth. He wanted everyone to see Christ. And him crucified. Paul's methodology, he says, was to intentionally to do only one thing. I decided to know nothing among you, but Christ and him crucified. And for that reason, he came in much weakness, in much fear, and much trembling. He didn't come with a program He didn't come with grand ideas of how he would convince the Corinthians to put their faith and trust in Christ. He realized that that was the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, the wisdom of God. And so he came with this singular message, I will preach Christ, and I will preach Him crucified. Well, imagine for a moment if you were part of a... Paul's mission and outreach team, and you were pitching this missionary vision to a sending missionary agency. Okay, Paul, you've had quite the conversion. At one point, you were murdering and martyring a bunch of us, but now the Lord has saved you, praise God, and now you want to plant churches. Amen. What's your game plan, Paul? What what do you bring to the table? What's the course of action that you're going to take for these Gentile pagan cities? Well, thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. You know, the Lord just put on my heart to proclaim the gospel and the mysteries of God revealed in Christ Jesus. Yes, yes, we realize that, Paul. But how are you going to do that? One does not simply walk into Corinth and proclaim Christ. We need a program. We need strategies. We need your ideas. You know what? In fact, we did a little work for you. We have some data here. These guys really appreciate public speaking skills. They really appreciate intellect and education. You know, your time as a Pharisee is going to come in handy. You know, I heard you love debating points. In fact, I heard you were pretty fierce back in the day, and you were pretty persuasive in getting other people to condemn us. So tell us, what steps are you going to take to prepare yourself to reach the Gentiles better? Yeah, I'm going to preach Christ and Him crucified. Right? Right? Not exactly the pitch, I imagine, would win tremendous amount of backing and support. It's so obvious, right? It's quite frankly, it's not compelling. So I realize I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here, but it's important for us to pause and consider this for a moment. What was the overall driving force of Paul's ministry? What did Paul believe would win people to God? What did he believe would eliminate the rampant immorality and idolatry and division that so plagued the Corinthian church? You know, in the American church today, I I think we've become obsessed with using the phrase gospel center. It's just kind of like a buzzword now. You just say it, you put it in front of whatever ministry you're doing, well, bam, you got this perfect thing going on. But what does it actually mean to be gospel-centered? What does it mean that the gospel shapes everything that we do? Now, don't get me wrong. I have thrown this word around, and I've been guilty of exactly what I'm telling you. You know, we say we want to do things in the gospel-centered way. We, we want men and women who embody gospel-centered ministry and cross-centered theology. But you know what? We tend to judge them on matters completely irrespective of that message. We assume that this is just a given. It's just background music that's always just supposed to be playing when we're doing church. But that is not what Paul does or he thinks. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. So consider just one example of how this plays out today. Consider how we listen and critique preachers in in the modern day context. Ask yourself after hearing a sermon what criteria do you use to establish if the preacher preached a truthful and effective message? What made you like it? What made you dislike it? Oh, this preacher, he makes the best jokes. He's got the best illustrations. He's so entertaining. His personality is so pleasant. Oh, I love listening to this guy. He's so down to earth. His, his style, he's just so smart and engaging. He's so culturally relevant. This pastor over here, he's so zealous. He's so passionate the way that he just speaks. You just feel inspired when you listen to him. He really knows how to speak to the people. None of those things are bad for preachers or teachers to do. The problem is when our evaluation just stops there. What about the content of his message? Did he argue his conclusions from a text of scripture rooted in a proper understanding of the biblical author? Did he actually teach me something new or challenge me from the word of God? Was the gospel preached and Christ presented as the only means of salvation? Did the points and applications he made actually originate from the passage? Have I been convicted of my sin? And do I now desire to walk more closely with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit? Instead, conversations after a sermon can often become a divulging of how the preacher made us feel. Our evaluation focuses on how well we thought his presentation of the text went, but not on the actual points that he was trying to make from the text. Don't get me wrong, the sermon might be a bad sermon, plenty of those exist, but messages are not first and foremost, evaluated on how they make us feel. Sermons exist to proclaim, thus saith the Lord. Sermons are intended to present something true about God, something true about us, and how we are to live and respond to Him by faith. Sermons exist for the purpose of proclaiming the message and the good news of Jesus Christ, that there exists a means That we can be saved and reconciled to God. Sermons exist for believers as a means to grow in sanctification, in holiness, in likeness to their Savior. And it is through the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It is only through Jesus. And as listeners, we have a responsibility to respond. Can you say amen? Can you affirm what the preacher is saying from the text? Is what was preached resulting in a new desire to obey God, to pursue Him more by the help of His Spirit? Our conversations ought not to focus on the details of how articulate a preacher was or how relevant or funny or personable he was. Those things certainly help. But as the listener the necessary component you need to ask yourself at the end of the message, did he depart words of life to me? The evaluation should be, did he preach the word of God? Did he preach Christ? Or was there some other emphasis communicated to me? Now now the pushback that comes oftentimes when we speak like this is you know there are a lot of other things in the bible right there are there are more things that paul even talks about in fact in this very letter paul is going to go on and talk about church division marital issues immorality idolatry spiritual gifts so which is it is it only talking about christ or is it talking about these other things too Is Paul contradicting himself? He said a lot more. No, he is making the argument that the effectiveness, the success, the foundation for all his ministry is not based on the wisdom, the intellect, the power, or the ingenuity of men and appealing to their felt wants or needs, but that all ministry, all teaching, all preaching, all obedience, all knowledge... All the benefits of the Christian life is built on the foundation of the cross. You don't fix your marriage simply because you applied the best psychology and practices of the day. You you don't end church division and racism by just being nicer and more educated about the situation. You can't end church division, I'm sorry, You can't overcome addiction to pornography and sexual sin or pride or idolatry by the wisdom of the day. Some of the things that will be communicated to us will be helpful. But as Christians, Paul understands that the only thing that can really help and speak to all of the issues facing the church, all of the issues that you will encounter in your life for godliness, holiness, And sanctified growth, they are blood bought. They are blood bought, my friends. They are not. The the cross is not just the key to unlocking all of these benefits. Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the beginning, the middle, and the end. The only thing that will make what a preacher says profitable is if Jesus Christ has been proclaimed as crucified. And risen for our redemption. That he purchased and accomplished something that we could not and cannot accomplish for ourselves. So going back to our example about the way this idea of gospel-centered idea is often muddled. Conversations of gospel preaching should center around what truth was proclaimed. And what obedience must I now walk in. Based on what the preacher said from the word not what the preacher said from the wisdom of the day. And I fear that too many people leave messages and sermons caring more about how the message made them feel rather than caring how the message bears on their soul. The wisdom of men focuses on the outside. It it tries to quantify and create metrics of success that are not rooted in the wisdom and power of God. Oh, you know... Tim Keller in New York City, you know, they're successful because they have this quality or this characteristic. Oh, this ministry is so effective because they do this. This church is seeing numerical growth because of X, Y, and Z. All of these things, these shifts toward a man-centered wisdom and approach toward life, they're so subtle because we want to rely on ourselves. We want to take credit. Now, none of those things are inherently bad as they assist gospel ministry. The problem comes is when they supplant gospel ministry. They become the primary reasons we believe that the gospel proclaimed will be successful or effective. And so we get this order wrong. Paul was not unaware of what culture was doing to sway people and be persuasive and to win them to a cause. I don't think Paul was even incapable of doing what they wanted to see and hear. I, I said earlier, he was quite bold and confident and quite persuasive when he wanted to per- persecute Christians. Paul was not choosing to focus on the gospel and do gospel-centered ministry as like a path of least resistance. He intentionally chose a singular focus on Christ, not because it's one way or a way to be an effective evangelist and minister, But it was and continues to be the only way to effectively do ministry. Paul's methodology was to herald the gospel and focus solely on Christ. He did not come intending to wow the socks off of his hearers with worldly wisdom and skillful speech. He wanted them to know the wisdom and power of God that transforms and saves a sinner comes only by a firm resolution to know Christ and him. Crucified. You need to be gifted and granted the gift of faith. It is only in Christ and through gospel proclamation that God saves sinners. Point number two, the methodology of Paul's ministry. Point number three, the purpose of Paul's labor. I decide to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ crucified, verse five. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Friends, what is your life resting upon? I recently caught a clip of, um, of a singer, musician who I'm guessing is kind of well known in like Christian evangelical circles. I can't remember his name. Um, but he recently went on Twitter and he basically said, you know, I'm no longer Christian. I'm no longer of the faith. And so, some YouTube channel picked up on him, and I was watching the interview, and quite frankly, I was really struck by all the reasons that he gave that he fell away from faith. I was struck not because they were compelling. I was struck because they had nothing to do with his sin before a holy God. They had nothing to do with the cross of Jesus Christ that saved or rescued him. had nothing to do with the glory and the wisdom of God that far surpasses man's wisdom everything that he mentioned had to do with some argument that was defeated in his mind for God's existence. Or some aspect of faith that he couldn't reconcile with his life, it was too hard. Or he even went as far to say that faith actually seems counterproductive to meeting the needs of ongoing issues in modern-day culture, having to do with sexuality, racial reconciliation, and gender, and poverty. As I finished the interview, I was reminded of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord does build the house, in vain do the builders strive. What is your life resting on? Paul critiqued the cultural emphasis of the day. He was determined to preach nothing but the gospel of Christ crucified, and he did so with the intended purpose, that the faith of the Corinthians might not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. Paul's pastoral heart for the church was to eliminate any and all foundations that faith could rest on anything that was not rooted on Jesus. He did not want to supplement his message with anything so that a believer in Christ would have to conclude, my faith, I was saved, not by wise or persuasive or shrewd or entertaining preachers, but by the Spirit and the power of God alone. Paul, in love for the Corinthians and for God, he purposely let himself receive ridicule and be mocked as a weak man and speaker as to avoid any other foundation being laid on him that men had come to faith. He labored among them and constantly reminded them that Christ is the cornerstone of true faith. In 1 Corinthians 3, 11, he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Friends, what is your foundation? What are you resting your life on? Is is it a singular argument that has yet to face scrutiny? Is it on certain teachers or preachers where if you found out that they were involved in a scandal, you would lose your faith? Is Is your faith based on tradition and upbringing where you believe because that's what you were just told to do? Is it on works and efforts where you hope that when you come to the end of your life, you'll be able to demonstrate to God that you were good enough? Is it in your natural abilities and talents that have given you some kind of advantage in life, whether it be your looks, your intellect, your charisma, your competitiveness, and those things are the things that you fall back on when things begin to go sideways? If any of these foundations resonate with you, I beg you today to destroy that foundation before it destroys you. Repent of all other foundations that you are building your life upon and believe in Jesus Christ and rest your life upon him and his merits, his work and his life. Because Paul warns the Corinthians in chapter 1 verse 19 from Isaiah 29:14 I, that is God, will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Friend, there is coming a day when God will expose all faulty foundations, all false belief, and destroy the wisdom of men that sets itself against the wisdom of God. And it is with love and concern that I remind and warn you again, brothers and sisters, that to entrust yourself to anything other than Jesus Christ will result in your destruction. God is not saving the world through technology. He is not saving the world through peace efforts. He's not saving the world through a vaccine. God is not saving the world through politics. He is not saving the world through the wisdom and guidance of men, but He is saving the world through the God-man, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life in place of sinners and rose again for them from the grave for his glory. Paul reminds them in chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, those who have found faith in Christ, you weren't wise. It was not because you were powerful. It's not because you were of noble birth. God specifically chooses what is weak and foolish and despised and is low, he takes things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. What are you resting in today right now that makes you believe that if God were return to return right now, as I am speaking, in this moment, and he asks you, "Why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? What are you wrestling in that makes you believe that you have peace and reconciliation with the holy, righteous, just God? Because if it is anything other than His Son, Jesus Christ, you must cry out to Him in your weakness and in your foolishness and realize the sinner that you are and the merciful God that He is and cast yourself upon His grace. How amazing is it? How amazing is it that God saves wretches like you and me through the folly of preachers like me who can't even get his clothes right. <laughs> we boast only in Jesus Christ. It pleases God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the word of God, I'm sorry, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. It is the power of God. If you are a Christian today, if you have been born again and rest your faith on Jesus, rejoice and praise God that His Spirit and His power sought you out when you did not. And He saved you through the knowledge, death, and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. And He continues to sanctify you through that message we don't graduate to any other greater reality it is Jesus Christ who is our righteousness it is Jesus who is our sanctification it is Jesus who is our redemption it is Jesus who is our all-in-all he is what is most precious to us it is all about Jesus who is the wisdom and power of God we must rest our faith on Christ. We must build our faith on Christ. We must strengthen and expand our understanding and knowledge of God through Christ and through the proclamation of the gospel. So in closing, friends, I just want to give just some few practical implications and an application based on our text this morning. Number one, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ. What do you desire to know more about than anything else? What do you desire to know more about than anything else? I mentioned earlier on, the magnitude of data that competes for our attention is dizzying. How much of what we consume is motivated by a deeper desire to know Christ? I'm not saying we can't have hobbies or things that we're into. Or can't enjoy from time to time some healthy online media. Or that we're all just called to kind of be hermits that stay inside of our house. Quarantine has proven that I can be stuck in my house all day and I still struggle to find, spend time with God. That is our struggle, to find time to be with God. So I don't think anyone's at risk of becoming a hermit. Okay? We need to be challenged to make time for the things of God. Reflect ask yourself the challenging question, what do you desire to know more about? What does your time and your resources go to? Because if it's not in some way centered on God or connecting back to God in some capacity, ask yourself, what what am I pursuing? What is life really about? Second thing, what areas of your life are you prone to rest on more than Jesus? What area of your life Are you more prone to rest on than Jesus? All of us struggle with wanting to supplement the gospel with something. Jesus plus something else. Ask yourself, what is it? Is it money? Intellect? Success? Power? Self? Pleasure? You know. Psalm 139.24 teaches us to ask the Lord, See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way Everlasting. Ask God to expose faulty foundations that would lead you toward a greater love and appreciation of Christ and to learn to rest only on Him. Third, what wisdom do you consult when it comes to problems in your home, in your workplace, or in your relationships? Paul's decision to know nothing other than Christ is not just a ministry application for leaders in the church paul begins first corinthians chapter one and two with addressing the issue of faulty wisdom and the need to know the wisdom of god because paul knows that there is a devaluing of the gospel that is leading to friction it's no longer the center and if the gospel is at the root of true reconciliation and fixing problems in the church it is also the same answer for our own personal lives Paul is unapologetically gospel-centered in how he sees the church reconciling, growing in holiness, and purging itself from the influences of the world. And I think it's the same with how we handle issues outside the church as well. Are you relying more on the practical wisdom of worldly advice, or are you resting on the wisdom and power of God to transform relationships? Do you do the hard work of proper study and finding resources that will help you so that you will have a proper fear of God because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight Proverbs 9:10 Fourth does what you believe about God and salvation how God saves affect your proclamation and sharing of Christ Does what you believe about God and salvation affect your proclamation and sharing of Christ. What I mean is, do you believe that it, is really, that it really is God that saves through the folly and the message of the cross? Personal, personal evangelism is one of the hardest things that I hear frequently come up. I just don't know how to do personal evangelism better. And then we think about global missions. I was getting a drink of water. I saw your, your, uh, your board of all the missionaries. They just seem like people only, only they could do that. That's, that's not me. I, I couldn't possibly go and do global missions. That's a special class of Christian. We get bogged down in thinking of evangelism is a program of highly specific questions and answers that we need to know how to deconstruct a person's worldview. And we need to point out their logical inconsistencies in their thinking. And we need to understand a Pluralistic framework for whatever. You didn't even you didn't know what I just said, right? So, what I'm saying is, it's not, you know, educate yourself and study. These are all beneficial. But you do not need those things in order to go and tell somebody about what God has done in your life. The grace of God that has affected you, you can share that with anybody. Paul's missionary methodology had three qualities to it trust God, be intentional, share the gospel. Trust God, be intentional, share the gospel. You don't need to read up on this rigmarole of how to like you know, do evangelistic ministry on the street and all these things. You just need to share the message of grace that God used to save you. You know, we put all these artificial hurdles toward evangelism and missions. Do you love Jesus? Tell somebody how much you love Jesus. Are you growing in a knowledge of who Christ is Go talk to somebody about that knowledge that you are enjoying. Do you have a heart for sinners and the lost? You don't need permission. Pray and ask God that he might send you. Go and do it because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are so few. And I think it's because we give lip service that the gospel is of first importance. People need to hear the gospel. But it's the last thing we actually think will save our hearers. We don't think a message about Christ coming down from heaven, living the life we could not live, dying the death that we should have died, going to the cross, dying for our salvation, being risen again, seated at the right hand of God. We don't think that that presentation, that information, could possibly save anybody. Because we think that we need to be intellectually smart and do all these things but God saves through the proclamation of the word. Do we believe that faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ? Paul's methodology of evangelism is simple, trust in God, be intentional, share Christ. Now, my last point today doesn't spring up necessarily from our text, but I felt convicted of this as I was thinking about it. And that is my own shortcoming as a father in terms of family worship. It's connected to this idea of evangelism. Moms and dads, how are you doing in family worship with your children? Do you regularly pray and read God's word and sing as a family to your Lord? You know, quite frankly, family worship will not earn you cool points. No kid Whoever will ever say Dad's Bible study was lit. <laughs> There's really no way to dress it up. It's not going to go viral on TikTok. But you know what? It is wise. It is helpful. It doesn't have to be extravagant. It just needs to be consistent and faithful. It's worth doing because God's Word does not return void. If we believe that faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of Christ then there is no greater task in our homes than to gather together and worship Christ as a family. And even if your kids have left home, or if you just happen to just be a couple at home, family worship is the same thing. Do not take for granted the time that you have together to read God's Word. You don't need to have children to have family worship. Whoever is in your household, do family worship with them. I encourage you to start small. Build it up over time. But do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So families, press on in family worship. In the beginning of our time, I'm drawing to a close. I know I've I've gone on long. I mentioned the incredible amount of data that is generated by us every single day. But I was humbled by an even greater figure that I believe demonstrates more profoundly the amazing wisdom and glory of God over man. I'm quoting an article now. It says... This um, author says, looking at both digital memory and analog devices, researchers calculate that humankind is able to store at least 295 exabytes of information, which means that that's a number followed by 20 zeros. Well, to put that another way, if your numbers are not your thing, if a single star is a bit of information in the sky, then that's a galaxy of information for every person in the world. If you're not into astronomy, he said that the amount of data is 315 times the number of grains of sand on the planet. 315 times the number of grains of sand on the planet. But guys, get this. It is still less than 1% of the information that is stored in all of the DNA molecules of a human being. How true God's word is when Paul declares the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Whose wisdom do you long for? What are you resting your life upon? Have you really rested on the person and work of Christ? Beloved, seek him above all worldly wisdom. He who is the wisdom and power of God, he who is our Savior and Lord, rest in the wisdom and power of God found only in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, nothing that I have said this morning will be of any account or helpful if you are not in it. And so again, I ask you for your blessing that your word would go forth, that either seeds have been planted, or Lord, that you are using the word to help one of your children today to be encouraged to pursue you above all worldly wisdom and that they would pursue you more passionately and more zealously. Not because of anything that I said, but because of what they've seen today in your word. Lord, would you give us more of your wisdom? Would you give us more of your son, Jesus Christ? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.